But in 99, my wife was diagnosed with leukemia. And I, I take that back. That was 2000. She was diagnosed with leukemia. She passed away in 2001. Uh, didn't have much in life insurance, had a little bit. Uh, it was just enough to pay off some bills, but really not all that significant. And really, that was more of a watershed moment for me in 2001 when she passed away, when I started realizing, you know, tomorrow is never promised. You can't take people or things in your life for granted. That's when I started really thinking, okay, there's got to be something more out there. I can still plan for the future, but I'm still going to live in today. But I'm also going to plan very hard for the future. So that way, whenever we do have the opportunity to retire, that we're going to be able to and truly be able to enjoy life because, again, tomorrow's never promised. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, where we tell the stories and strategies of everyday millionaires and unveil their current portfolio allocations. This is episode number 109. This is Clark here alongside Jace. Jace, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. How you doing? Good, good, good. We're talking a little bit before the show here about uh, Charles Schwab and TD Ameritrade, right, and the potential merger. Yeah, I think that's going to be be pretty crazy. I think you know you got these other discount. It's almost like a race to the bottom, right, to trade for zero dollars. You got Robinhood and BlackRock and all these companies that kind of entered the market, and, and I think it's partly what's driven some of this merger, to be honest. So that you know Schwab, who's got three point five trillion dollars in assets. And, and TD's got 1.5, so you can have $5 trillion in assets combined. We'll be able to compete with some of these other discount brokerages kind of that have come up in the startup world. Yeah, and even before that started, now you're, you know, you're starting to see Fidelity just dropped it to zero, zero fee trading, and they have their 0% uh, fee index in mutual funds. I think they have four or five of them. Yeah, Vanguard, right? so, same deal. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the way things are heading. And then that, and then the institutional companies are Goldman. And, and now you have talks of Google, right? Opening checking. Yeah, they're going to get in the finance accounts. game for sure. And, and, you know, why wouldn't they, right? I mean, they've got, they've got the platform. They've got all the data. They've got all these users on Gmail and, and, you know, Apple and iPhones and what Apple already has kind of gotten into it with the credit card. Why wouldn't they? You know, everything's online. People are doing away with the, the uh you know brick and mortar type services so you know it's a great opportunity for them to get in the game and you know at the same time you know as a consumer myself you know i think you probably feel the same way it's great in a lot of ways because technology will allow us to have better options and more competitive options right yeah i think everybody would be happy all around right and you can kind of pick and choose and standardize what you want to you know i like it with fidelity because i can have everything in one place yeah, and they just they just opened an HSA too. So I think you know everybody's starting to dabble in in wide groups of things instead of focusing on a niche, which totally. is maybe how it previously was. So it'll be interesting anyway. to see how it plays out. Yeah, interesting stuff. So just uh, real quick, uh, last week we had David. He had a net worth of about three hundred and fifty thousand. He's a uh, new on his fairly new on his investment journey, but has some good experience in real estate and. And just as a review, we kind of briefly like to highlight those that aren't yet to millionaire status, but are on their way. And and our goal on the show is to kind of track them through their investing story and journey and 
and return and kind of see how he's grown and how he's been able to grow his net worth while either keeping or changing his asset allocation. So just occasionally we'll throw in an interview with somebody that is uh, below a million dollars. On today's show, we have a great interview with Jeff. He has a current net worth of about $4 million. He's worked in the financial and banking industry for most of his life, and, and he's also recently retired. So we talk a little bit about retirement with him and also his asset allocation, which he has about $1 million in retirement accounts, $2 million in after-tax investment accounts. He also owns his primary residence and a rental cabin. He also does some sting- single truck, uh, stock trading, so an interesting interview today with Jeff. Uh, before we jump into that, though, I just want to thank our sponsor, Obsidian Capital, for supporting the show. They help this thing keep going. So creating passive income is one of the quickest ways to create and establish wealth. At Obsidian Capital, their core philosophy is to enable qualified investors to create long-term wealth passively through strategic real estate investments. Their team of experienced real estate professionals identify stabilized and value-add multifamily real estate assets that will provide strong financial returns, a healthy risk profile, tax incentives, and additional benefits that come from investing in real estate. They pride themselves on a high level of integrity and have experience in acquiring and managing over $300 million in multifamily assets. Furthermore, their leadership has over 45 years of combined industry experience. View their website today to learn more about their streamlined investment process at www.obsidiancapitalco.com. If you'd like to invest in our multifamily opportunities, we also have some uh, hard money lending opportunities available right now. Feel free to reach out to us. Our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com, and we're happy to discuss those. If you'd like to share your financial story as a millionaire or one who's close to becoming uh, a millionaire, as we just mentioned, we're happy to have you on and, and, and hear your story. Again, our email, millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. Also, lastly, we have a sponsorship spot opening up at the new year. So if you're interested in sponsoring the show, we greatly appreciate that. Helps us keep keep things going and keep all of us learning new things from each of these these great individuals. So a couple things there if you're interested. And, and without further ado, let's jump into the interview with Jeff. Jeff, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and kind of what you're up to now? Sure. I'm 52 years old. I live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. I just recently retired last week, in fact, uh, out of the financial industry. Uh, Congrats, in the, by the way. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, net worth of roughly $4 million and uh, learning how to be an early retiree. That's awesome. Congrats on retirement. So let's get into to the net worth a little bit. You're sitting at $4 million just over. How is that broken up? Oh, it's broken up mainly by you know, a number of different uh, assets. I've I'm a, a big believer in not only having retirement assets, and let me pull up my spreadsheets here really quickly. So I've got roughly about one to 1.05 million in, in retirement assets. And so that's your typical 401k, Roth, and regular IRAs. But most of, uh, luckily, or unluckily, depending on how you look at it, uh, most of my net worth is in what I call a bridge account. And the bridge account is essentially a set of accounts that I have that is all uh, after tax. Uh, so, and that's roughly made up of about uh, 2.1 million. Uh, I have a home that I purchased or that we built back in the late 90s that's completely paid off. Home value is roughly 460000 And back in 2012, purchased a little rental cabin in West Yellowstone. 
And one of the most beautiful places and one of our favorite places in, in the U.S. is a little cabin that we stayed in. And uh, during the housing downturn, it just happened to come available via short sale. A short sale. So we picked that up for 170000 and it's now valued somewhere between two hundred eighty and 300000 Still have a mortgage on that because it is uh, it is being rented out as a vacation rental. And then I also have a side hustle a business uh, that that we started back in 2006 and started monetizing in 2012. I'm a I'm a 25 percent partner in that particular business. And right now, my the valuation on my percentage is roughly about three hundred and fifty thousand. But that's valued at we're putting a value on that at five X. So if you wanted to do a, a more traditional valuation at 3x, that would come down a little bit. So all total, that, that comes up to roughly $4.1 million. That's awesome. So let's talk a little bit about that, that bridge account that you mentioned in, in your 401k IRA. What are those typically invested in? Well, with the, you know, I'm taking a little bit of a different approach since I've got such, such a long-term horizon on between I, when I plan on how long the bridge account's going to last to when I actually need the retirement. I'm just, I've got that right now at, at 60, 40, and I really don't have any expectation that I'm going to change the retirement portion of it. You know, it needs to, I'm not going to be touching that until the required minimum distribution age, which uh, could be by that time, 72 years old. I'm hoping the bridge account will last me a good 20 years or so. But since I just retired, I will shortly roll that over into my other brokerage and get it invested in in another 60-40, probably using ETFs and no individual stocks. But the the bridge account is kind of where all the magic happens for the most part. I'm Strangely enough, it's just a little bit backwards because I've got my bridge account broken up into three different tiers. I have a zero to two years, and then I have a three to eight year tier, and then I have a nine plus tier. And then for each of those different tiers, I have a different allocation. So zero to two is all cash or money market. And then from the three to eight years, I have it in roughly 40, 60, 45, 55 between cash, bonds, fixed income, essentially, and then dividend paying stocks. And then in the nine plus, I have uh, more of a 70-30 mix as well. So you could say it's a little bit backwards when you consider that you would think that my retirement accounts would be more aggressively invested. But I'm actually treating the nine plus since I still have that time. And since it's more actively managed by myself, I have that being a little bit more aggressive. And I also happen to have some issues, some equities in that account that have such huge capital gains. That is the real difficulty with this bridge account is that I can't just readily sell these positions if I need cash without then locking in the cap gains, which I'd really like to do or like not to do, should I say. So that's essentially how I I have my bridge account tiered to last for the 20 years. And the hope is, of course, that that I can make the bridge account and that 2.1 million last indefinitely such that I never have to really even touch the retirement accounts uh, save the required minimum distributions at 70 or 72. I want to talk a little bit about those required minimum distributions since you brought them up there. But before we do, I kind of want to rewind. When did you kind of start investing? And I see your investing philosophy 
evolved over time or have you kind of always had this this approach? Yeah, I started back in 1989. I was 23 years old. There was this, uh, I was always a computer nerd. I was, I've been a computer nerd since age 13, 14, programming back on you know, Commodore VIC-20, uh, Commodore 64, Timex Sinclair's. And that was back just in my, in my teens. And there was this relatively young company by the name of Apple. And I had just started my first real professional job at 19 years old and gotten into the computer department at age 20. And finally started getting a little bit of money put, put away. Now I, I've all, anybody that knows me knows any, will say that I've been saving for retirement since about age 13 when I had two paper routes and you know, yada, yada, yada. But whenever I got my first real job and I was working in the computer industry at age 19 and 20, I started researching a little bit about the market and there was a little company by the name of Apple. And so I and myself and a friend, we took a $3,000 each. We walked into a Charles Schwab office in uh, in San Diego and said, I still remember what I said. I said, I have no idea what I'm doing here, but I'd like to purchase shares of Apple Computer. And they walked me through the purchase of it. And I was the proud owner of Apple. Unbeknownst to myself, what that was really going to start was it really launched my desire to know more about the markets. And so that's when I started reading one up on Wall Street and beating the street by Peter Lynch and learning everything I possibly could about the, about the markets. Now, of course, that was really pre-internet, at least to the normal person, but knowledge really started building from that point. And then before long, I was looking for other computer companies such as America Online, which had just started taking off and went IPO back in the early 90s as well. So my philosophy really grew more from buying computer companies that I knew about. Investing what I knew, the old adage of investing in what you know, was absolutely true. Because of that, though, to a certain degree, I, I developed more of a trader philosophy or a trading mentality. Over time, and as I matured, I learned that I really needed to be an investor, but I still had a trading mentality. So my axiom has always been, I'm a trader by nature, but an investor by necessity. And that's always what's guided me through difficult periods, such as the lost decade between 2000 and 2010, the, the dot-com crash of you know, 99, 2000. If I had been like so many others, and I used to run a stock thread, a, a trading stock thread, and I saw all the sto stories, I was always preaching, whenever you make a certain amount of money, you put some of it away or you put it into another fund, or you put it into a house account, or you put it into your bridge account. You you take it out of the issues or the, the trading positions that you've got. So that way you're always playing with house money, uh, to use a gambling term. Yeah. And so many people couldn't do that. And during the dot-com crash, I saw it on my own stock thread that I ran. There were so many people that lost absolutely everything, including marriages and their house. And because... For me, I, I kept a small trading account, and whenever it exceeded a certain amount, I would take out what the amount was that it, in excess of, and I then rolled it into a savings account, or I put it into my house account because we wanted to buy a house or build a house. Mm -hmm. And so my trading account always stayed the same, yet as the money was going up, I was siphoning it off and saving. And so that's where 
that's where the investor by necessity came from. And luckily, when the dot-com crash happened, not that I didn't get hurt, but I had pulled out so many or pulled out money from so many other great positions yeah. that uh, that I wasn't hurt terribly bad. Oh, good for you. Obviously smart. So I want to talk about some of these early purchases. I know we talked a little bit about it before recording here, but one of you said one of the first ones you bought was Apple. Do you still have that? I don't have it as part of the original position. Uh, I wish still... I had. But yes, I in fact, Apple is still my largest position. And I sold it at one point it had eclipsed. It was up to about $230 a share. It dropped all the way back down to I believe it was 170. And I finally during that period, lightened up on on Apple. And of course, when you're carrying such big capital gains, and because my cost basis on that, as I recall, was somewhere around 12 or $13. Wow. And even because uh, I purchased it shortly after the dot com crash, because I still believed in Apple and it was making a comeback. Hmm. Uh, but uh, the capital gains uh, is something that you have to manage. And a lot of people don't think about that whenever you're carrying those large capital gains, that one sale like that can can trigger quite a uh, tax hit. So I, I still own Apple. I own probably 50% of what I did because I, as I started nearing retirement, I started realizing, okay, I, I've got to start unwinding, unwinding some of these positions and get smarter with my diversification. Yeah. So out of curiosity, how much do you hold the dollar value in, in single stocks? Oh, you know, I, I don't have that readily available for you. Hang on one second. I mean, just from before, I know you have, We can. I want to hear the story of Roku, right? That's over 100 grand. So is it? Is it more or less than 500? Well, let's take a quick look here. Let me just give you, it's going to be right around, I'm going to say, I'm going to say it's about 700K. Okay. So that's, that's significant. Yeah, that's probably, that's probably about right. I'm looking at, uh, looking at my positions now and well, it, that might be a little bit high. Actually, I'm look. well, you know what? It's 600 and from what I'm looking at right now, it's closer to about 750K. Okay. And what are your, what are your top, I don't know, three holdings? Top three holdings. We've got, uh, do you want the dollar values as well? Sure. Why not? Apple right now is for the one particular account that's in represents uh, roughly almost 11% of that account. And that's 154,000 in market value. <laughs> and here's, here's the fun part of that particular holding of the 154,000 market value um, the gain on that, the gain loss is 146,000. Wow. So yeah, um, <laughs> that's why it's so difficult to sell it. Oh, uh, the, the other one that I just unwound at the very beginning of this year was Google because I ended up, uh, I had 200 shares of Google and the market value of that was, is 124,000 right now. But it was double of that. I sold half of that position because it made up roughly 17% of that particular account. Now, again, I have, when, when I'm talking these particular positions, I, I have three different tiers, as I mentioned, of account. I have zero to two, which is all cash and money market. And then I have two through eight, which is incomes, stocks, and fixed income. So most of these positions, the large positions are in what I consider my, my longer term account, the nine plus. And so when I tell you Apple is 10% or 11% of this particular account, this account is valued at 1.45 million. And so you can kind of back into that with right. 150 in Apple. So Google was a lot higher. I had 
250,000 of that 1.45 would have been Google if I didn't lighten up the load like I did at the beginning of this year, just because I realized I, I've got to get it out of there. I've got to move it into some more income producing stocks and vehicles to prepare for my, my retirement in what was then September. Uh, Microsoft as well is another one. I, I bought that uh, back, uh, back when I think it was trading at 13 bucks a share. So. It's uh, 70, about 72,000 in Microsoft with 50, 59,000 of that in uh, gain. Then I have Facebook, which I also lightened up on. I'm now sitting at 57,000 in Facebook with a 33,000, oh, excuse me, with a 24,000 gain. After that, it gets a little bit more traditional. So we have Deer, a little bit of Alibaba, which is one of my favorite uh, international plays, JP Morgan, Exxon, Procter and Gamble. Uh, so some income in there as well, a couple of utilities as well. But what's what's really important is the top three positions, Apple, Alphabet, and Microsoft, make up roughly about 33% of that account. Everything else, the maximum holding is 3.9%. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's quite a few other uh, positions that are just of sure. the equity in that 1% to 3% range. And then, of course, I have a lot of ETFs. Yeah, and I, I want to ask you, Jeff, because I think you're probably the person that we've, you know, out of, I don't know, 125 millionaire interviews, that you're probably the one that's held the most in individual stocks. Jace, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, at 700, 750,000. And one of the ones we, one of the ones we talked about before the show is Roku, right? You bought a thousand shares at, at 28 bucks. So $28,000 and, and now it's at 130 something. So you've made, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars on it, but, some people would look at that and say, gosh, how do you dump $28,000 into a single stock? So maybe talk about your mindset there. Is it because you've been doing it for a while? You've you've obviously had some wins, but I'm sure you've had some losses. So what's kind of your, your thinking there? Okay, so remember when I was saying I always kept a small trading account. Now, in my in my definition, it was a small trading account. The trading account is I keep that off on the side from my other accounts. And the reason I do that is because trading and investing, especially the trading aspect, is something that's always interested me. It's always what's, it's what fueled my initial market knowledge. And it's who I was in my DNA is, in fact, if I, if in another life, I probably would have ended up on, on Wall Street, except for the fact that they just have very high values as well. And so I, I wasn't willing to be in that high sales type of environment and handling people's money like that. But I always had a small trading account and that trading account grew. So after I started getting more financially independent, I decided I was going to set that trading account at $40,000 and still use the exact same discipline I've used in the past, which is as I make good trades, that $40,000 will grow. I'll, after I liquidate the trade, I'll then roll that other money into my other accounts. But that trading account is really like my sandbox. That's what keeps me interested. When I get up in the morning and I do my workout, I'm listening to CNBC. I'm then checking my stocks. I'm always looking for good investments. And then I'm listening to people that are much smarter than myself as well. So the interesting thing was then going into the end of 2018, I was doing this typical loss harvesting just to do whatever I could to reduce my my taxable income for the year, roll out of certain positions and then roll into other positions that I thought were either going to, I was going to be able to derive income from to help with my looming retirement. But then also I wanted to look through the, 
my past basket of stocks, I, I'm a big believer in trading what I know of stocks that I've been following for the last six months to a year, but all out of my trading account. So I had my $40,000 trading account. And I normally in that will take a 50 to 100% position. Normally, I take 25 to 50% holds on, on these trades, or I take positions in trades. Roku was one of the stocks that I was kicking myself for because it had gone from the 20s and it zipped up all the way to about $70 a share. I loved what Roku was doing in the streaming. I've always looked for companies that are redefining basically consumer trends or creating a consumer trend. So they've got a vertical market that's on a steep incline and then a consumer trend that also is on a steep incline. And where those two cross, you kind of get this critical mass. Well, Roku went from 20 some dollars a share up to 70s and then crashed all the way back down to the 20s. But I had been watching it finally and it finally stabilized right around Christmas Eve. And so I had $40,000 sitting in my trading account because I had recently rebalanced my accounts for going into 2019. And I thought, you know what? I'm pretty comfortable with a thousand shares of Roku thinking, I think it's got upside in the next six months to 45. Maybe $40, $45 a share. Well, lo and behold, up until just a couple of days ago, it was in six months or in eight months, it's gone from $28 to <laughs> time 170 to the point where I can't even sell it because I'm going to log a, this tremendous capital gains hit. Yesterday, of course, it settled back down because it had just gone up way too far, way too fast. And it's now back at the 133, 134 range, but still carrying a pretty large capital gain. But no, you're absolutely correct. It's to tell you the truth, looking at my diversification and now the fact that I am retired, I would much rather get a big portion of that gain into something earning an income. And so I'm waiting until I go long term capital gain. I will probably sell off at least half that position, maybe even more than half that position. Let the rest ride because I believe Roku's got a, is a, has a huge runway ahead of it for the consumer trend. I think we're still in only the second inning, maybe third inning of streaming. But um and then I'll roll that amount out of my trading account back into into something that's going to generate more income. So no, you're absolutely right. It's it's the funny thing is that I'd like to keep my trading account somewhere below south of forty thousand dollars. And because of Roku, it it is now at a hundred and uh, that account is uh, bear with me just a second. Because I have another position in that account. That trading account is now sitting at $134,000. And technically, it's really sitting at $150,000 because I also have Beyond Meat. And Beyond Meat is one that I didn't get at, at IPO. I bought that at about a hundred and about $150 a share. But the great thing about Beyond Meat is my broker is allowing me to loan it out to those that wish to short it. And right now, the income that they are paying me annualized is at 51% to allow them to loan my shares out to those willing to short. So if they were to continue paying me the 50%, that's like making 50% on that particular holding if I were to hold it for the year. Typically what happens though is the shorts will be have a pretty quick burn of somewhere between one and two months. Yeah. And uh and then they the short interest that they're paying me will drop. But they started at 30% and it's now up to 51% and I've been that's been four to five weeks now. Hmm. So I got to ask, you, you've been on this great journey. How did you decide to retire at 52? I'm actually late. I really wanted to do it at age 50. But uh, things at work 
didn't happen kind of exactly the way I'd scripted it. And basically what ended up happening is I was ready to retire at age 50. My boss knew it was coming. So the CEO knew it was coming. And in my mind's eye, even all the way back to, if you ask my mom, she'll tell you that I had planned to retire at 45. I don't remember saying that, but yeah, I was young and foolish enough to probably think that I was, I was going to be able to do that. And I've never been one that was truly a minimalist such that I was going to retire and you know, kick everything else, like sell all my possessions and live in a, in a shoebox. But what ended up happening is about two years ago, I was getting really ready to retire. Uh, at the same time, as you could imagine, I've got executive pay, I've got executive benefits, I've got this great job. And there was a little bit of a push and pull. And a big project came up at work. And they wanted me to run this project. And this project was split into two parts. I agreed to run the first part, which was going to take somewhere between eight months and a year. But I said I wasn't going to run the second part. And that one of the other executives could do that. So I was going to do the old volleyball set, you know, where for the free, I set them up and then they get to spike at home for the second half of the project. Well, what ended up happening is the first part took about a year, which lasted. That was back until 2000 and at the end of 2017 and into the very early parts of 2018. Then the part came for me to set it up. And so I did the volleyball set and I set it. And was waiting for another executive to take over, and everybody took one big step back, and the ball just kind of landed there at the feet. And I was telling the CEO, well, it's not my fault. You've got to find somebody else to to run the project because I'm going to be retiring here in six or eight months or so. I'll give you a nice long notice. Well, long story short, he gave me a call one night and said, what can we do to get you to run the second part of this project. In my mind, I already knew it was going to happen. It felt a lot better to do that. And so I signed on to run the project, which then completed mid-year this year. And I had given my notice back in March. And you know, I, I got some incentives as well. They, um, they did a couple of nice things for me to help and sent me to stay. Nothing major, because I'm very much a company person. Uh, I could have gotten a lot more, but I already knew it was the right thing to do. And so I agreed to stay on for another three or four months following the project going live just to ensure everything went well. So really, I had, I had planned on retiring two years ago. But just because of circumstance, I ended up staying another essentially two, two and a half years. But it worked out well because we were in such better financial position. House was paid off. No debt other than the cabin, which is its own little business. And, and it cash flows nicely. So I get another two and a half years of executive benefits and pay. And then, of course, the market hasn't done too badly over those last two and a half years either. So I just really focused on slowly increasing my diversification to maximize income and kept putting money off on the side until until the time finally came. Um, still tried to get me to stay longer, but I had said, no, uh, the stress was getting to me just from the job overall. I've already felt I was two years behind uh, schedule. And so, yeah, I, I tapped out. That, oh. that was basically the, the, the lifetime of my retirement. Yeah. How old were you when you decided that you wanted to retire at 50? You know, it wasn't so much that that I had picked 50 necessarily. 50 just seemed like the right number. And that's the number I wanted to shoot for. The way that I always looked at it was it would be better to be more prepared and less. And I never I was always pretty honest and transparent with myself thinking, OK, I, I'm thinking a certain way at 40. But I, I know at 50, I'm going to think a different way. So I would rather be prepared 
and be able to do it and then choose to stay rather than want to do it at 50 and then not be prepared. So I worked my butt off uh, to manage my finances. And I really started at about age, I'm going to say 38, 38 to 40. The big issue that I had, and it's, it's strange because I, I had, I experienced two events that were pretty financially impactful back right after I had moved to Utah from, from Southern California in 1993, a year and a half later, uh, the house burned down or actually the apartment that we were staying in burned down. We lost all our possessions and the insurance didn't cover it. So all the money we were saving for a house was wiped out. So we had to recover from that. Then fast forward to moving here to the Pacific Northwest in 1997. You know, that's when I got my first executive job and things really started going well. Uh, my wife got pregnant. We had our first child in 1998. But in 99, my wife was diagnosed with leukemia. And I, I take that back. That was 2000. She was diagnosed with leukemia. She passed away in 2001. Uh, didn't have much in life insurance, had a little bit. Uh, it was just enough to pay off some bills, but really not all that significant. And really, that was more of a watershed moment for me in 2001 when she passed away, when I started realizing, you know, tomorrow is never promised. And you can be a great planner, but you've got to keep things in perspective. You can't take people or things in your life for granted. And I need to use this this experience to my benefit and for my daughter's benefit and to anybody that I decide to spend my my life with going forward. I have to use this as as an educational moment. And so that's when I started really thinking, okay, there's got to be something more out there. I can still plan for the future, but I'm still going to live in today. But I'm also going to plan very hard for the future. So that way, whenever we do have the opportunity to retire, that we're going to be able to and truly be able to enjoy life because again, tomorrow's never promised. So I'm going to say it was about 38, 40, whenever that, I'm going to say 38 when that really kicked in, which was about five years after my, after my wife passed away. You know, it took me, the widower process took me at least two to three years to really come full circle before I really started getting my feet under me. And I decided I needed to do something a little bit different. I needed to have some new longer term goals. Yeah, totally. Well, appreciate you sharing that. I, I, I want to ask about the cabin. Do you, do you manage that on, on Airbnb or VRBO or how do you kind of go about managing something that's not next to where you live? We use a, a management company. It's, um, you know, strangely enough, whenever we uh, were introduced to Yellowstone, I was there whenever I was younger, but I, I wasn't truly there until very late 2000s, 2008, 2009 or so. And I just absolutely fell in love with the area. We happened to stay in this little cabin. It was on VRBO. We found it and we stayed there for five nights. Absolutely fell in love with the place and then was talking to the owners about, you know, the cabin. She said, yeah, we might sell it eventually. And I said, Hey, let me know if you ever decide to. Well, as it turns out, that was 2008, 2009, the financial crisis hit and about 2011 or so it went up for sale and they didn't contact me. It was just I was getting ready to go back out, and I wanted to go to Yellowstone. Uh, my new wife and I and my child were going to go out to Yellowstone. So naturally, I started looking up this cabin. It's like, we'd love the location of it, and we want to stay here. And I couldn't find it. So I did more searching, and I eventually found it, but it wasn't up for rent. Well, come to find out, it was for sale for nearly 300 k And I said, well, there's, there's no way I'm going to pay that, and it's not for rent. So we stayed somewhere else. Well, not long after that, about 
four, five, six months, it was down to 230,000. I made some contacts in the area, found out that the people had had some health issues and they were trying to really get rid of it as quickly as possible. And they were selling it as a turnkey with all the furniture for 230. That didn't pan out. They then sold all the furniture themselves and listed it for 210. That didn't pan out. They ended up leaving the area and gave it to the bank. The bank then lowered the price to 199 to drop it. And this is back in 2012. Uh, I just put in an offer for 165, 170, thinking that they were simply going to, simply going to come back with 190, 195, but they, they countered at 175. I had already done all the workups just to see if it would pay out and everything. And then I completely wiped it out of my Excel spreadsheet, set it all back up from the beginning just to see if it all penciled out again. And sure enough, it, it penciled out and we threw caution to the wind and purchased it. Wow. Purchased it for 175. And then right now it, uh, the net income on it on an annual basis is about 16,000 or so. Wow. That's awesome. And you ran that for how much a night? It, right now it's going for two ninety nine a night. Wow. Now it's West Yellowstone, so Yeah, totally. It um it the shoulder season is October and May, or should I say October through May. Uh, it rents out pretty well in October and May, but the high season is really June through September. Yeah. And so it so obviously if if you're going to go in the winter it's a lot less it's down to 159 169 a night as i recall but then you get to the may and october and it's in that 229 249 a night i, I don't recall the exact amount but uh, and then the high season is 299 but it's the great part is is it's managed completely by yeah. right it's hands off all i do is get a check and replace pots pans dishes sheets things like that Awesome. But now that we're retired, we're actually going to be able to stay there. We're, we can never get to stay there because it's always rented out. <laughs> so it's it's kind of sad. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Jeff, you've got a, you've got a net worth, you know, north of 4 million bucks. Where in your just retired, where do you kind of go from here? You know, that's, that's a great question. Um, I'm trying not to script early retirement. I've done a lot of research and I've read a, a number of different blogs and sites about early retirement. Of course, everybody has the same concerns, health insurance, and it's, it's a concern of mine as well. You know, I'm going to end up with a high deductible plan. You know, the great part is right now is I had so much vacation saved up from work and all that. I'm, I'm on the clock and being paid until early January. Uh, nice. So yeah, so it, it's really nice. I, I get almost a full four months of vacation. And so I, I really get to experience retirement while being on the clock. And so that's a pretty sweet setup. But really, for the most part, and my wife, I had a discussion with my wife about it. We're not doing anything really major for the next year or so. Yeah, sure. We'll take a couple of little getaways here or there. You know, maybe we'll go up to Seattle, see the Seahawks play, or we'll go out to the cabin there's not much cost there with doing that. So we'll do a few things, but we're not going to take any big trips or anything because I really want to see the financials work. I really want to see, you know, the expense sheet, the, the uh, income statement work and really just let life come to me. I'm, I'm trying not to really script it and have a, a big plan. Like even this last week, it still feels like I'm on vacation and it's absolutely correct from what I've read. You know, it's like, it doesn't really stink in. You're in that honeymoon period for that first two or three months realizing, heck, I don't have to go back to work. 
So really more than anything is I'm just, I'm letting life and retirement life find me and I'm working my side business. Uh, the side business will keep me busy as much or as little as I want. I'm going to start taking what's called a guaranteed uh, payment of really about the same amount that health insurance is going to cost me, which is over and above what we're making off the business. So we get, we pay out our income on a quarterly basis. And then I'm also going to be taking a roughly about a $1,250 stipend or guaranteed payment out of the business per month. And then my, my hope is that I'll be able to return that to the business at some point as long as business is going well. So it's really just more of a safety net while I allow retirement to find me and I see the income statement work. But you know, longer term, I, I don't really have any, I don't have any illusions that I'm not going to feel differently in a year or two years or five years. Uh, I may need part-time work to keep me interested over and above the side business, but I have so many different interests in, in hobbies. I don't think that's going to be the case. And I know there's some vendors that are interested in uh, even ha- having me work for them. And there's some other financial institutions I could do consulting for. But really, it's going to be slow and go for the next year. I'm just going to take it easy, de-stress from a life of ex- basically executive work. It, I noticed it was taking its toll on me. And there's always been a lot of stress in, in the work that I've done. But as my body aged, the way stress was manifesting itself on my body changed dramatically after about age 45, 46, 47. And that played into the ultimate retirement uh, plan as well. Is I, I could have kept working. If I had worked another five years, I would have had paid a fully paid health insurance. But I was dreaming about work every night. I was thinking about work often. I was up at 2.30 in the morning. And something which is really rare for me was there was two or three occasions where I woke up in the middle of the night with panic attacks. And so I, I started realizing I need to listen to what my body's telling me. And mm. I need to get my accounts in order to see if we can do it now. And maybe less is more in this case. Obviously, Jeff, you've been financially successful and, and throughout your career. And, and congrats again on the success and, and congrats on the early retirement. So I just want to finish before we get into some mistakes and advice, some rapid fire questions here. So what's the most expensive pair of jeans or pants you've ever purchased? Oh, you know, I just threw away most of my work wardrobe and bought three pairs of not fully skinny jeans because that ain't me. Uh, But (laughs) the next category up from skinny jeans and I paid, I think it was $59 for one pair of them. And I about had to go in back and puke. I, I would say for jeans, $59. Now, I... I love great suits and I love good shirts and things like ties. That's in shoes. That's where my professional wardrobe is where I would spend my money. So I, I would go out and you know, buy a suit for, okay, I, I won't throw crazy money at suits, but you know, I'll spend $750 on a suit. But if I have to spend more than $39 on jeans, it, it just makes me want to throw up. <laughs> okay. What about shoes? Probably no more than about $220 for work shoes. I am now a, a convert of more expensive tennis shoes, though. In fact, I've just uh, before I got on the uh, on the line with you two fine gentlemen, I was researching some of the Nike shoes, uh, the the fly knit Nike tennis shoes that I really mm-hmm. liked that were a hundred and like one hundred and thirty bucks a pair, but they just fit and are so light and were really nice. And I 
I've bought three pairs of $60 Nikes trying to get that same thing. And now all I've got are three $60 pairs of shoes that I can't stand. And so I'm right. trying to find the, the right. ones that are no longer made. So yeah. about, so 220. Okay. Most expensive car you've ever purchased? $50,000. And uh, that was my Forerunner Limited. Actually, actually it was 49000 Okay. Most expensive meal out that you've personally paid for? Oh, I love, I love a great steak. And for two of us, uh, about say $280, $290, but that included a bottle of wine. Okay. How old were you when you hit your first million? Oh, that is a great question. I was, I was 40, 44, 46. I take that back. Okay. 46. I believe that's correct. If I'm doing my, actually 45. 45. Okay. Spill the difference. Nice. Uh, how much do you spend a year household spending? And how much do you, I guess, in retirement anticipate spending a year? Everything that I've got uh, right now loaded, my total spending annual expense is uh, roughly about 80K. And that, that also, though, has health insurance loaded at roughly 1700 a month or 20400 a year. So there's uh, nearly... 25% of that cost is, is health insurance. And and I just recently loaded absolutely everything based on a an expense study that I did tracking our expenses over the last six to eight months. Now, I've done it over the last years, but now that we're older and getting ready to retire, I wiped everything out and did an expense study. And so, yeah, everything right now is uh, – that also includes taxation, though. So without uh, without taxes, it's roughly well, – we'll, we'll leave it at 80K. So okay. it's – 80k. Okay, any uh, tools or websites or books that stand out that have been beneficial or helpful to you along the way? You know, for the most part, I read a lot of parts of, or should I say, I read parts of a lot of books. Nothing that I can really recall. The ones that really started my my interest in the markets were the Peter Lynch books, and they're pretty standard if you talk to anybody that's gotten into investing or trading. And that's One Up on Wall Street and Beating the Street by Peter Lynch. Mm-hmm. But uh, for the for the most part, it was it was those two that started me, and I not any other books that I've or um, I was a voracious reader of magazines like Kiplinger's and Money Magazine and such. But while I was trading, I started reading a lot of the a lot of the books about that and realized they were all essentially saying the same thing: lots of charts, lots of graphs. But they were all the same and I wasn't really taking anything tangible away from them. So I, no, I, I would say after Peter Lynch, one up on wall street, beating the street, not much. Okay. Uh, what's been your, as much as you're comfortable sharing here, your range of income through your work in life. I guess it depends on how you look at it. Uh, does that include? Yeah. You're trading cabin and uh, the yeah. cabin. And if you include the cabin and my side business, I would, I think this year we're going to be in that three, 25 to 350 range, but that does not include investment gains. So that's just actual freight income. Yep. And uh, last question here, what are maybe the two or one or a couple of things that stood out to you that, that helped you become a millionaire? Were there any driving factors? Was it your work ethic? Was it passion? Was it finding good opportunities? Was it anything that stood out to you? Yeah, all of those things, actually. I, I'm pretty well known for having these little mantras and, uh, these these little laws and these little rules and you know I've, I've 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 got quite a few of them but as far as what led to being a millionaire 
I won't say that I ever really focused on becoming a millionaire. I focused on good strategy. In fact, even when I got my first job, I remember when I, I, I got one paper out and then I just said, wow, I could do one at night and I could do one in the morning as well. So I got a second one. Then I started working at Kentucky Fried Chicken at age 16. And when I left Kentucky Fried Chicken at age 19, I had twelve or $14,000 in the bank and I liked having money. And so whenever I got my first real job, I'm making... 13811 was what I was making 13811 per year in the financial institution starting out as a teller I started paying myself I wanted to make sure that I always had money in fact I've in fact I've always said that my greatest fear has been living having to live paycheck to paycheck and so I'm a over the years I I got more mature in my processes but keeping debt low staying away from credit card debt Staying away from frivolous purchases, paying yourself first, not being afraid of a good risk. There's all sorts of risks you can take with your money. And so you don't want to, we'll call it risk with due diligence. And so whether it's buying a cabin or buying stocks, uh, you'd be surprised how many people I talk to that aren't willing to get into the markets because they feel it's, it's too intimidating. It's too scary. And so I do a little bit of wealth coaching on the side with people, not from a financial planner perspective necessarily, but more wealth coaching, helping people to take control of their financial future and start dreaming a little bit, but then also realize that they have a role to play in making those dreams come true. And so I, as I tell everybody, it's not for me to tell you what you can and cannot purchase. I'm going to help you to understand the impact of that purchase. So really all those things that you mentioned are things that I, I've used myself as well. But it's really, it's not that difficult. The main thing is to say, keep debt low. You spend well below your income. And if you can do that, I think you're well on your way. But then you've got to take advantage of free money in the form of 401ks, uh, your IRAs, tax-free growth via Roth IRAs as well. And just have good discipline with your money and get money off on the side away from your normal accounts. So that way it has the opportunity to grow through uh, compound, which is that's one of the things I learned 30 years ago. It was about the compounding of money over time. And it absolutely works. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. And, and, and I totally agree. hundred percent. So that's again, that's for our listeners. That's Jeff with a net worth of just over 4 million by 4.1 million. Thanks so much, Jeff, for coming on the show, sharing your story. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. It was uh, great being with you guys. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.